Good afternoon. Our next case is State v. Robinson. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Aaron Johnson, and I represent Mr. Robinson. If I could, I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. The question presented at this point in the case is whether or not this appeal is wholly frivolous. The answer to that question is no, clearly no. The majority was wrong at this point, and the dissent was correct. And of the two issues raised by the dissent, one of those two issues is not just non-frivolous, but meritorious, and it should result in relief on appeal. This is not a frivolous case. Now, about that issue, our basic argument is that Mr. Robinson should receive a new sentencing hearing because at the first one, the trial court appeared to act on a misapprehension of law regarding the scope of its own authority to award a downward departure based on the substantial assistance that Mr. Robinson provided to the Greensboro Police Department. I don't think there's much disagreement about the applicable law. The statutory provision at issue is Section 9095H5, and that section provides the trial court in this context tremendous discretion. The trial court has discretion about whether or not to make a finding of substantial assistance, and then it has broad discretion to decide what to do about that finding. It can reduce the otherwise mandatory fines. It can reduce the otherwise mandatory active sentences. It can suspend any active sentence and place the defendant on probation. It can do some combination of these, or it can do nothing at all. So the only real dispute here is whether the trial court appreciated just how broad that discretion is, and there are several indications that it did not. Mr. Robinson got caught up in this case as a result of two different police searches, one in December of 2016 and one in February of 2018. And after those searches, he was charged with two counts of trafficking, and he began to cooperate with the lead detectives from those two cases, Detectives Jeter from 2016 and Detective James from 2018. And as a result of his efforts, police were able to seize and remove from circulation a significant quantity of drugs, guns, cash. In total, I think it was somewhere around three ounces of heroin, several guns, more than $100,000 in cash, at least one car, and more than 12 kilos of cocaine. So based on his substantial assistance to the Greensboro Police Department, Mr. Robinson asked for downward departures in both of the cases, the 2016 case and the 2018 case. And the trial court declined to do so despite having very broad discretion in this context. But there were several indications that the trial court didn't appreciate just how broad this discretion was. It twice called the sentence mandatory, at least twice, even though it was discretionary at that point. And it did so while saying there was no substantial assistance in that case, that case being the 2018 one. He also made several comments indicating that he felt his hands were tied by the General Assembly, saying that the sentence, it is what it is, saying that final number, which is set by statute. And then sometimes I just have to follow what the legislature says, and this is, I think, one of those times. So I guess that brings me to the issue of the remedy. The substantive sentencing issue has been fully briefed. 
uh, and I expect that the arguments in the Court of Appeals would be roughly the same as what you have in front of you. Um, so I think that this court could reach the merits and remand to the trial court for a new sentencing hearing. Uh, but if you're not prepared to go that far, uh, but agree that at least the issue is not frivolous, uh, then an appropriate remedy would be to remand to the Court of Appeals. But when you say there's, when you say there's a remedy, mm -hmm. the remedy assumes that there was an error. Are you saying that there was clearly an error <clears throat> in terms of an abuse of discretion by the trial court? I think that there are enough indications that the trial court did not fully appreciate the breadth of its discretion that a new sentencing hearing would be uh, warranted. I understand that you're construing some of what he said based upon your view of it, but mm -hmm. is that enough for this court to act and say that there was error, such that there was a remedy that needs to be uh, imposed here? I'm not sure I quite understand the question. Well, it, 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 it sounds as though you're saying, based upon what could be or may be some misapprehension of the law, that therefore there's a need for a remedy. I see what you're saying. Is there enough there to say that, yes, the trial court misunderstood it, the breadth of its discretion as opposed to it may have? Yes, I think there's enough there. Is that speculation on this court's part to go that far in terms of what the trial court was saying on the record? I don't think I would call it speculation. I would say it's just your interpretation of what is actually there in the transcript. And it's really not very long. It's maybe the, the last four or five pages. As I understand your argument, reading your brief, you feel as though on one hand, uh, the trial court recognized that it could render sub substantial assistance consideration in one case, mm -hmm. but not in another case, perhaps. And so as a result, it may have been confused. Mm -hmm. How would we uh, juxtapose that with the aspect, though, that the trial court apparently understood enough that it did, in fact, uh, make a determination that it was going to consolidate the sentences into one judgment. Couldn't that just as easily be uh, deemed to be a, an appreciation that the trial court understand it, that he could combine both sentences but elected not to do substantial assistance uh, in either one of them as opposed to consolidating both of them for one judgment? If you're asking whether or not sentencing as it did would necessarily be arbitrary, I wouldn't go that far. Um, our argument is that it, it abuses discretion insofar as it acted based on a misapprehension of law, um, not that this was necessarily arbitrary or couldn't have been the result of a reasoned decision. Um, if you're not prepared to say that the trial court uh, did, in fact, misapprehend the scope of its discretion and that there are just some indications for that, and you're not willing to remand to the trial court for that reason, then we would still ask that this at least be remanded to the Court of Appeals for briefing there. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I, I do want to grasp what you're saying okay. uh, correctly. Uh, didn't the trial court uh, uh, give some consideration in terms of combining both of these for one judgment uh, and giving it in a presumptive range as opposed to, on the other hand, what it could have done was to either fully deny or fully allow there to be substantial assistance? Do I think that that reflects an exercise of the trial court's discretion? No, that's not what I said. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, couldn't the trial court have fully allowed or fully denied the opportunity for substantial assistance to be a part of the trial court's determination? Yeah, I could have done that. Okay. And based upon that, 
isn't it valid that the trial court in making entries for the record mm -hmm. and giving all of his considerations at the time, couldn't he have, instead of consolidating all of the matters for one judgment, mm -hmm. which he did say on the record, I'm going to give this consideration as opposed to going one way or the other in terms of allowing mm -hmm. uh, substantial assistance or denying substantial assistance. I'm going to use my discretion and combine for one judgment and given the sentencing range, and that's going to be the extent of my consideration. Was that erroneous? I think that is one way it could have exercised its discretion. Um, but it could have done that even without a finding of substantial assistance. And if I recall correctly, I think that's what happened in Meadows, uh, one of the cases cited in the briefing, um, that two different trafficking judgments were sort of con uh, run concurrently and one was run consecutively. So that <clears> would have been one way of doing it. Uh, and I do think that the trial court did put on the record in this case that it was giving consideration to uh, everything that was in front of it. But I do still think that there were enough uh, indications in the record of the trial court suggesting that it did not fully understand how it could have applied the a substantial assistance downward departure in both cases. And again, that's particularly saying there was no substantial assistance in that case, the 2018 one, uh, calling the sentence mandatory, um, and then making a couple statements suggesting that it believed its hands were tied by the General Assembly. Talk, talk to me a little bit about the mandatory statement. I mean, okay. Technically, the sentence for trafficking in the absence of the downward departure essentially is mandatory. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And wh why do you suggest that we should interpret those references to mandatory sentences to mean uh, I don't have authority to have a downward departure in this second of these two cases as compared to I got a mandatory minimum sentence sitting here as a result of the trafficking instruction, the trafficking statute. I've decided what I've decided about downward departures, and therefore it's mandatory. Well, because and I think the first one might support your argument, the second mm -hmm. one might not. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to see why I should why I should go with the first of those interpretations rather than the second. Well, it's it's because by the time the trial court found that he made substantial uh, given substantial assistance to Detective Jeter. Uh, at that point, it was no longer mandatory. It was just discretionary. Um, and so by itself, I see what you're saying, that it could just be a reference to in the statutory scheme it's otherwise mandatory. But you have the additional statements of that final number, which is set by statute. And then uh, sometimes I just have to follow what the legislature says. And this is, I think, one of those times. So I think that's enough to say that the trial court probably misunderstood the scope of its discretion. And so this should go back for a new sentencing hearing and the judge can make that decision uh, you know, with a, a fuller understanding of the options on the table. I want to ask about whether uh, the degree to which we can consider other um, matters that are apparent from the transcript as relevant to this question of whether or not, as I understand it, you're saying the trial court appeared to be under the misapprehension that he could only um, consider substantial assistance in the case in which he the officer who testified that he had done all these things to assist in drug enforcement um, and that he couldn't consider <coughs> that substantial assistance in the other case mm -hmm. and that that's just not correct as a matter of law. Yes. That's the mistake he made. Yes. And so, so then we're looking at, well, how do we know that he made that mistake? And I, I, I'm curious the extent to which things like the fact that 
um, the state didn't take any position and, and appeared to make statements to suggest, well, if he does get probation as his counsel is asking for, mm -hmm. we want to make sure that, you know, there's, there's no additional, there's no second chances beyond that. Yep. Um, and, and the fact that his assistance was so beyond what uh, at least his defense counsel seemed to contend mm -hmm. was the norm in, in terms of, you've already laid out the quantities of, of contraband that police were able to remove from the streets because of his mm -hmm. assistance. Do, are those factors also relevant in us assessing whether or not the court was under this misapprehension of the law? Yep, and I think that supports our argument and that's why we included it in the brief. Um, I think that's one of these sort of sets of factors that supports our argument because it really was quite substantial compared to the amount they found on him. Uh, across the two searches in 2016 and 2018, they found uh, a little bit less than an ounce of heroin. So just looking at a one-to-one -one ratio versus what he has versus what he was able to help take off the streets, that's enough to deal with the heroin. He got three times off as much, got three times as much as he was found with off the streets. Uh, and then it went well beyond that, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, more than 12 kilos of cocaine. And so the fact that the, all that information was in front of the trial court and then he still imposed a 90 to 120 month sentence, even after defense counsel uh, asked for probation and the state didn't object to that possibility, uh, that also tends to suggest that the trial court imposed the sentence it did because it didn't fully appreciate it that it had a better option, which would have been to apply substantial assistance downward departure in both cases. So let me ask a follow-up about, I just want to make sure I understand what you're asking mm -hmm. for us to do here. Um, you, you started out saying that the issue here is whether the, whether there's an issue that's not frivolous. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, as I understand it, um, that it's arguable that mm -hmm. he didn't, that the trial court didn't exercise its discretion because it didn't think it had any. Right. Okay. And that that issue should then be fully briefed. Mm -hmm at the Court of Appeals? Yes, that is one of the two things that we're asking for. Okay, right? and the, my question about that is, if that were to happen, if we were mm -hmm. to send it, say yes, we think you should, um, that there's arguable merit here, fully brief that issue, would the briefing be any different than it is so far? It would be pretty much the same arguments, I think. I can't speak for, uh, for my opposing counsel, but I think the arguments would be roughly the same. That you're making to this court right now? Yes, I think they would be roughly the same. Okay, that's. I was just trying to figure out that if we agreed with you, what would be the point of further briefing to the Court of Appeals? Would and, that's, there? and that's why if you agree with me that it's not frivolous, but you're not yet prepared to take the step of saying that it's meritorious. That's if you think it's within between those two different standards. And, and, it's, and in, in your view, it's, up, it's just completely up to the court to decide which of those options yes, if, if we agree that it's not frivolous. Yes, I think you could decide, I think you could choose either one. Okay, I think I follow. So there was a plea agreement where uh, several uh, offenses were dismissed. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no reservation of a right to appeal. That is true. Uh, the uh, Court of Appeals dismissed the appeal, mm -hmm. but nonetheless granted a writ of cert. Uh, but then, uh, uh, is there uh, a, a question then, since there was no, uh, you know, a, a, as we uh, look at it, does the procedural posture 
uh, create any additional hurdles for your client? For remanding this to the Court of Appeals? I don't think so. Um, and that's because the Court of Appeals already uh, voted to grant cert. There were at least two votes for that, and nobody appealed from that part of the Court of Appeals' opinion. Uh, so I think if, you, if this court were to remand, there wouldn't be any problem with it getting back to the Court of Appeals. I think I have covered most of what I wanted to say today. So if there are no further questions, I would ask to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Thank Counsel. You. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Nick Sanders. I'm an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. This case is before this court based on the dissent by Judge Murphy. This case was submitted to the Court of Appeals for Anders Review, which required the Court of Appeals to review the record and determine whether there are any issues of arguable merit or if the appeal is instead wholly frivolous. Judge Murphy identified two issues that he believed had arguable merit. The only one at issue here is whether the trial court abused its discretion by applying defendant's substantial assistance to only one case in light of State versus Baldwin. Now, both the dissent and the defendant are operating under a misconception about what the trial court actually did in this case, and I'd like to explain why. I think, as the defendant would agree, there are two questions for the trial court when it comes to substantial assistance. The first is whether substantial assistance was, in fact, given. The second is, if substantial assistance is given, whether to deviate from the mandatory punishment set out by the statute. So to put that test in the context of this case, the trial court had before it two separate trafficking offenses, one from 2016, one from 2018. Each had their own mandatory sentences at that point. But the trial court reviewed at the sentencing hearing the evidence presented of, of defendant's assistance to law enforcement. It determined that defendant gave substantial assistance pertaining to the 2016 offense, but it stated that, there was, that the evidence did not rise to the level warranting a finding of substantial assistance for the 2018 offense. And if I can refer you to a specific part of the record, I believe that is page 93, volume 2, where the, where the trial court says there was no substantial assistance for the 2018 offense. Now, because the trial court did not find substantial assistance for the 2018 offense, the defendant and the dissent argue that this means the trial court did not know that it could apply substantial assistance to the 2018 offense based on the assistance given in the 2016 case. But there was no misapprehension. And as to your question and to the defendant, Justice Morgan, there's a presumption in this court that absent anything in the record indicating otherwise, we presume that the trial court knew its authority and that it acted appropriately. So looking to that record in this case, the trial court never said that it wanted to apply substantial assistance to the 2018 offense, but could not because it came from another case, which would have been the error that happened in Baldwin. The trial court clearly understood that it could find substantial assistance in the 2018 case too. Instead, what happened was that the trial court looked at all the evidence presented at the sentencing hearing and found substantial assistance pertaining to the 2016 offense, but that it was not enough to warrant a finding of substantial assistance in the 2018 case as well. And that conclusion is fully permissible um, within, this, within the subs, substantial assistance um, framework. If, if, if I understood Mr. Johnson's argument, his 
I think he's saying, in effect, the trial court could have done that, but there's a reasonable basis for believing that he did, didn't understand what the scope of his discretion was. If I've misstated Mr. Johnson's argument, he can, of course, correct me on his rebuttal time. But assuming that I've correctly stated his argument, why isn't he correct in your view? Well, Your Honor, there's nothing in the record to indicate that the trial court misunderstood its authority with respect to what it could do with substantial assistance. What it did was find substantial assistance in the 2016 offense and found that there was not substantial assistance in the 2018 offense. That alone does not raise any misapprehension of law. Um, like I said, the trial court never said in the record, oh, I want to apply substantial assistance to the 2018 case, but I can't because it was given in another case. That never happened um, in the record. So we have to presume that the trial court knew what it was doing and what the trial court actually did was um, fully permissible within our framework for substantial assistance. I, I want to make sure I'm clear on the facts and, and in particular um, what you understood the trial court to be relying on in concluding that what the defendant did was related to one case and not the other. Um, and isn't it true that all of the activity that he did to assist law enforcement happened after the 2018 search? That is correct, Your Honor, but it was with the, with the investigator from the 2016 offense. Right, but both investigators in both cases are with the same police department. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And so what, what other than the fact that it was a, a different police officer, um, I mean, and, and I, 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 we're also dealing with the same offense, right? It's, it's the, the trafficking of the same substance, and in one case there was less substance in his possession, and in the other case there was more. But it's not like we're dealing with two very different crimes, and he helped with whoever was perpetrating one crime, but not whoever was perpetrating the other crime. That, that is all correct, but I believe those are distinctions that make a difference. We have two different trafficking offenses, trafficking in heroin in 2016 for, I believe it was about 10 grams, and like you said, the second one in 2018 was for more grams. And it is correct that they are both in, um, with officers of the Greensboro Police Department. But to consider why that makes a difference, I think it's important to consider the inverse. If defendant had committed, say, 10 different trafficking offenses, one for each year beginning in 2010, and then in 2020, he went to one of those officers from one of the 10 and provided some substantial assistance. He engaged in a controlled buy for that officer. That defendant doesn't then get to claim, because I gave assistance to one officer within this police department, I get substantial assistance for these nine other trafficking offenses. The trial court can still look offense by offense and make the decision about whether there was substantial assistance in that individual case. And to kind of elaborate that on that, why the trial court's conclusion that there was substantial assistance in the 2016 but not the 2018 case, why that was permissible. Um, I'd like to go back to the two-step inquiry. If there are multiple trafficking offenses like there were here, a finding of substantial assistance in one case does not automatically answer that initial question of whether there was substantial assistance for any and all other offenses with mandatory punishments that happen to be sentenced at the same time. I apologize uh, for taking a minute, but let me go back to your hypothetical sure. and help me understand. So suppose this defendant wanted to provide substantial assistance in both cases. Does that mean he had to figure out 
um, which officer he would give which information to about um, uh, the illegal activities and somehow like evenly divide up his information so that he would get um, at least have the chance of saying he had substantially assisted with both cases? Sure, and I think two answers to that. First, if you look to the statute of 9095, um, I believe it's H5, the legislator didn't set the test out as to whether the defendant wants to give substantial assistance in each case. It requires the trial court to make a, a finding of whether um, substantial assistance had actually been rendered. And so, in this, in this case, that that wasn't particularly a concern. Each officer had reached out to the defendant and told him about the opportunity to provide substantial assistance. And I think the rule, what has to be true is that the defendant has to provide a level of substantial assistance that would permit the trial court to find that he rendered that in each trafficking offense. But th is that what Baldwin requires? Baldwin, the holding of Baldwin is merely that the substantial assistance given does not have to relate to um, the accessories, principles, or co-conspirators co in the case being sentenced. So, for example, like in that case, they could find substantial assistance um, based on his help with um, the motorcycle gang in Virginia and Tennessee, even though the motorcycle gang activities weren't the subject of the crime being charged there. Right, but if that's true, why can't it equally be true that in this case, um, the trial court was entitled to decide that the, the substantial assistance that he provided after 2018 um, was helpful to the Greensboro Police Department and related to both offenses? I don't think I'm saying the trial court could, per se, could not have found that. If there was sufficient evidence put in put before the court in this case that defendant had given enough substantial assistance to the Greensboro Police Department to warrant that finding in two separate trafficking offenses. If it was proportional to that, the trial court could certainly make a finding of substantial assistance in both. The fact here is the question, the limited question here is whether the trial court abused its discretion by looking at this evidence and concluding that it was enough to warrant substantial assistance in the 2016 case, but not the 2018 case. Well, well I thought the question here was whether or not the record indicates that the trial court realized what it could do. That, that is correct. That is another question. And there's no, as I mentioned, there's no indication that it realized that it couldn't. There's no indication that the trial court wanted to use this evidence to apply substantial assistance in both cases, but found itself somehow not able to based on a misapprehension of law. There's no indication of that. So what, let me, let, let me um, see if I'm following this. I think that um, the argument, as I understand it, is whether the record would reflect that it's at least arguable that the trial court misunderstood the extent of its discretion. You, I would argue that it's not, Your Honor. I think the it's record. It's not even arguable? I don't think so, because I think there's a, there's a presumption that the trial court acts appropriately absent something explicit in the record that would indicate that it didn't. And there's, there's nothing in this transcript that would, that would point this court to that conclusion. Um, what the trial court did is view the evidence and make the initial determination of substantial assistance for each offense. There's no case law, there's no statute that prevents it from analyzing it that way. So I think what the court did was fully permissible, so I would say, based on this record, there's no issue of arguable merit with respect to that. There's nothing the trial court said that would indicate it mis misapprehended its discretion in this case. Well, as I understand the argument, um, by Mr. Johnson was to the effect that 
some of the comments by the trial court, especially at the very, um, the very end on page 93 and 94, um, that I just have to follow what the legislature says, indicated that he didn't think he had any further discretion. Well, that not at that point, at that point, that was an accurate statement by the trial court because it stated at the top of 93 that there was no substantial assistance in the 2018 case. So at that point, the, he, the trial court would impose the mandatory sentence. But if I understand the argument, if he finds, and, and, and if, if you think I'm misunderstanding the arguments, please tell me. But my understanding of Mr. Johnson's argument is essentially that once you find substantial assistance in one case, you have the right, may not, don't have to, but you have a right to engage in downward departure, not just in the case in which substantial assistance was found, but also the one in which it was not. Uh, you're not arguing that that proposition that, as to what the trial court had the authority to do is wrong, are you? I would say there's no legal support for the proposition that once the trial court makes a finding of substantial assistance on one offense, that that part of the inquiry is automatically answered for the remaining offenses that happen to be sentenced at the same time. No, and I don't, I'm not sure that, that, that I, it seems to me the argument is once you make a finding of substantial assistance in case A, mm -hmm. you're sentencing somebody in case A and case B, the fact that you make a finding of substantial assistance in case A gives you the right to make a downward departure in both A and B. I think that's the argument. And I would disagree with that, Your Honor. And are you saying the trial court does not have the authority to make a downward departure in case B? If it made the initial finding of substantial assistance, yes. But the trial court so, is- I'm sorry, say that again. The trial court is entitled to make a finding of substantial assistance with respect to each offense that has its own mandatory punishment. But is the, if the trial court, so is your argument that the, if the trial court, in my hypothetical, makes a finding of substantial assistance in case A, but not case B, that the trial court's downward departure authority is limited to case A and does not exist in case B? It could, it could fashion the punishment that it wishes to in case A because there's been a, been a finding of substantial assistance. But if the trial court founds, finds that there's been no substantial assistance in case B, then it has to impose the mandatory punishment. But how do you, how do you square that with Baldwin? Because all Baldwin stands for is it looks to the statute of 9095H5 and says that to get substantial assistance in a particular case, that substantial assistance doesn't have to relate to the, to the co-conspirators, to the accomplices, to the principals in the case being sentenced. It doesn't require that if a defendant commits 10 trafficking offenses, um, and I would just like to give a hypothetical about that again. Um, assume that in 2016, the defendant commits a trafficking offense. After that, that same year, he provides substantial assistance. And then he, he does two more in 2017 and 2018. It's clear that after that time, there's been no substantial assistance with respect to those trafficking arguments. So is your argument then that for, in your hypothetical, that the trial court has no authority to make a downward departure in, in the 2017 and 2018 cases? It could if it found substantial assistance on those cases, but that, that is a prerequisite to exercising that authority, yes. So why, if, if that's the way it works, why does, why was it era for the trial court in Baldwin 
to say that even though you made substantial assistance in a totally unrelated case, uh, I don't have the authority to give it in the case before me. How do you differ? I mean, that's because that's what Baldwin held, as I understood it. The fact that you gave substantial assistance in the unrelated case authorized a downward departure in case in the case that was before the, the court. That seems to me to be another A and B. We've got substantial assistance in A, even though it's not a charged defense because it took place in another jurisdiction. Uh, therefore, uh, you don't have the authority to do it in case B, and that's not Baldwin held exactly the opposite that you did, as I understand it. I think Baldwin addresses a different issue. I think on one hand you have the issue of whether substantial assistance is limited to actors involved in the case being heard and sentenced. That's what Baldwin answered. It had one, if I'm remembering right, it had one trafficking offense. So the determination was whether substantial assistance could be given outside of that offense. But there's a separate issue of whether a trial court's finding of substantial assistance in one case being heard and sentenced requires it to apply that substantial assistance to any other, any and all other well, traffic. Well, there's the, there's the, I'm not sure requires is the issue. I think the question is whether you can if you choose to, not if you're required to. Well, the trial court is, for, upon pre being presented evidence at the sentencing hearing of substantial assistance, the trial court can make a determination of whether that assistance rose to the level of that would permit it to find substantial assistance in each of those cases. And then the parties could argue about whether that was an abuse of discretion or not. But, um, but yeah, does that, I'm sorry, does that answer your, your question? I think, I, I think we've done about as good as we can do. Okay, I apologize if there's any other way that I could explain it, I'm happy to. Um, I think perhaps what might be helpful is to walk through Baldwin to show that's not, um, to briefly walk through Baldwin to, sh Baldwin to show that it's not applicable here. Um, we've kind of touched on some of the facts, but the defendant and two co-defendants in that case tried to sell a quarter pound of cocaine to SBI agents. And afterwards, an SBI agent offered the defendant a chance to return to his home state and assist by infiltrating a motorcycle gang. The defendant successfully did so, resulting in numerous arrests and drug charges. But at the sentencing for defendant's initial cocaine trafficking charge, and that was just one incidence of trafficking that he had been arrested on, the trial court found that defendant gave substantial assistance, but that it could not be applied because the assistance did not deal with the identification, arrest, or convictions of accomplices, accessories, co-conspirators, or principals in that defendant's cocaine case. Um, and so the Court of Appeals, which was affirmed procurium by this court, found that was error because substantial assistance is not limited to accomplices, accessories, co-conspirators, or principals in the specific case charged. And that error simply did not occur here. The <coughs> trial court found the defendant gave substantial assistance in his 2016 trafficking charge, and there's never been any dispute in this case that the assistance in that case dealt with a heroin supplier from a completely unrelated case. So the trial court here obviously understood Baldwin's holding and didn't find itself um, bound in any other way. And as I believe we've kind of discussed, those are two separate issues of whether substantial assistance has to be given, um, can be given through assistance in another, in another unrelated case versus a situation as we have here where there are multiple trafficking offenses. Um, those are two completely separate inquiries. And so I think, the, so the dissent and the defendant, by relying on Baldwin, that does not, that does not prove their argument in any way. 
So if there are no further questions, in sum, the trial court did not err by concluding within its discretion that defendant's assistance did not rise to the level of substantial assistance to be applied to both the 2016 and the 2018 offenses. The state respectfully requested this court affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Just a couple quick points, Your Honors. Um, Justice Irvin, I believe I share your understanding of Baldwin. Uh, I think that it means exactly what you were talking about, that if there are cases A, B, and C, and the defendant provides substantial assistance in case A, then yes, the trial court uh, sentencing at cases B and C can give substantial assistance downward departures based on case A. But doesn't um, have to. Doesn't have to. None of this is required. The trial court has very broad discretion, and the only issue is whether or not the trial judge in this case appreciated just how broad that is. Um, the second point I wanted to cover was uh, the point about the presumption uh, that the trial court understands the law and the scope of its discretion. There are other indications in this record, and that's what we went through earlier today and in the briefing. Um, the comments it made about the sentence being mandatory, at the same time it was saying there was no assistance in the 2018 trafficking case. Um, and then some of the comments about the General Assembly and whether or not it's, um, the statutes would be binding. What, what burden do you have to overcome the presumption? What we were just talking about earlier today, the references to the sentence as mandatory. I, I understand what, what the evidence you contend is that okay. may be susceptible to multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. What is the burden that you have to overcome the presumption? I suppose the burden is to show that the trial court uh, acted based on a misapprehension of law regarding the scope of its discretion. I'm not sure I quite understand how to, uh, how to answer that question. Well, your friend on the other side uh, indicated that there, there must be explicit um, showing. Um, would it be a clear showing? Uh, what, what level of burden would you have to overcome that presumption? Are you like an evidentiary standard? I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. And that brings me to the, just the last point that I wanted to make. This was submitted to the Court of Appeals for Anders Review. And I think based on the briefing and the argument you've seen today, that it's fair to say that this issue is at least arguable. And for that reason, if it's not remanded to the trial court for a new sentencing hearing, it should at least be sent back, I think, to the Court of Appeals. So if there are no further questions, I would ask that you reverse and remand. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.